Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why are so many US states tightening abortion laws right now? So this time last year, we were in the throes of the debate around the Eighth Amendment in Ireland. The referendum held in May eventually saw the constitutional ban on abortion being repealed, and Ireland has been providing abortion services from January of this year. However, as we liberalised our laws, many American politicians on the other side of the Atlantic are attempting the absolute opposite. A Republican president appointing Conservative judges to the Supreme Court has encouraged many anti-abortion activists to feel like it is the perfect time to move on their requests, mainly to restrict the availability of termination services as much as possible. But obviously, once one movement gets buoyed up, the opposition will also see a new wave of determination against that. Even this morning, my Instagram feed was full of celebrities spreading the word about what's happening with these so-called heartbeat bills. Emma Watson, obviously not an American herself, but she was talking about what's happening in Georgia and Alabama, and she brought up the case of Savita Halapanifer, which obviously happened in Galway. So there are loads of elements to look at today, and particularly when we're talking about these laws, we'll be talking about Roe versus Wade, the federal law system, and the importance of Donald Trump. And I'll be doing all that with my guests, the Journal.ie's assistant news editor, Aoife Barry, and acting editor, Christine Bohan. We'll also have Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUIG, to explain some of the complexities around the US legislative process, of which there are many, and of which I need most of them explained. Hi guys, I'm going to start with Georgia and Alabama because that's what most people have been hearing and reading about this week. Aoife, what's going on there? So the most recent thing people will have heard about is Alabama because on Tuesday this week, the legislators in Alabama voted to ban abortions in nearly all cases. So basically made the state the seventh this year to pass abortion restrictions. And these particular restrictions were basically challenged the constitutional right to abortion in the US. So that followed on from Georgia. But Georgia passed a slightly different bill, what's called a heartbeat bill. And that's one of about four or five states that have tried to pass these heartbeat bills. These these bills basically would um, prevent abortion after the point where you can detect a heartbeat in a fetus. You can see these bills are different and that Alabama's bill is a lot stricter than the Georgia bill. But what we see also is quite a few states coming together in 2019 and into 2018 as well, trying to tighten abortion restrictions and roll back on them as well. How strict are we talking here? It depends on the state that you're looking at. Um, So as Aoife said, seven states have passed bills restricting abortion. Alabama is the strictest. You know, it's an outright ban unless there's a risk to the woman's uh, life. Four states have tried to pass these heartbeat bills. So Georgia, uh, Kentucky, Mississippi and Ohio um, and Utah and Arkansas have both tried to restrict abortion to 18 weeks rather than, say, 24 weeks. But so, you know, there's kind of a spectrum there. But all of these, none of them are in effect yet. So they're all expected to face lengthy court battles. So there's kind of a as we see this kind of this shift in abortion in the US, you can see that even within states, there's differences between each one. Yeah, I'm kind of struck there that you're saying they're really, really strict, but they're still not as strict as what we had well, that's true, up yeah. until last year. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm just thinking the fatal fetal abnormalities, that is still allowed under US law? It's allowed under some of the bills, but not under all of them. So again, you're talking about what the actual states are determining in their in their specific Okay, bills. so we should probably get into that. How yeah. are how is there so much variance from state to state? So I think before we get too far into that, we should get an expert to explain to us how the law, the legislative process works in the states. And we spoke to Larry Donnelly, who is a law lecturer in NUAG. He's also from Boston, so he's very well placed to explain it. I started off by asking him, could he briefly give us an overview of what the legislative system is like in the US? Well, the, the United States is a, is a breakdown between the federal and the state system. Uh, at one 
one level, the, the federal government, that is through the Congress, has the power to make law. And uh, where there is a conflict between federal and state law, uh, federal law does preempt, that is, overrule state law. Uh, but the, the reality is that there's a limited area where the two uh, spheres are competing. Uh, the reality is that most of the, I suppose, the laws that govern everyday life for the people of the United States uh, are made at the state level. So most laws really are down to uh, the individual states to make themselves. So you have 50 different, uh, I suppose, regimes. Each state, uh, even though they're part of the United States, uh, each state is a sovereign and has the authority to govern uh, the lives of their own citizens in virtually every sphere. So, Chris, if I'm interpreting what Larry is saying correctly, I can be in New York and have one law governing what I can do. And then I can be in Ohio and have another law. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of a little bit of conf- that's quite confusing because there's so much variance, probably a lot more differences than you might expect across the 50 states. Taking a step back, we know that the Supreme Court ruled in the 1970s that states couldn't ban abortion. But because it's up to the politicians in each state to decide how to enforce the law, there actually is, there's a lot of variance between them. So some states will allow abortion without restriction up to 20 four weeks. Um, some states um, they'll bring in rule. They have rules like, for example, women have to attend counselling before getting an abortion. That's in states like Alaska and Arizona. In some, they've got a waiting period, uh, which we're familiar with here in Ireland, um, between consulting a doctor and having an abortion. So it's somewhere between eighteen hours and seventy-two hours. There's other states, so like Florida, for example, where women have to have an ultrasound before they have an abortion, and the abortion provider is legally required to offer the woman the option of looking at the screen before the abortion. So there's a kind of a range of things. There's a a lot of these are kind of designed to discourage women from having an abortion. Um, and there's other ones as well. There's like it's banned after 20 weeks in some states. Parents have to be advised if someone under 16 or under 18 is trying to get an abortion. Um, so there's kind of there's a range of different variants between all the different laws. But there's other steps too as well. So this is very much about, you know, the women who are getting abortions. But there's some rules in some states around the, the providers of abortions. So there's six states that only have one abortion clinic left in them, uh, including Missouri, which is a population of over six million. And that's because of laws that were passed in these states that said doctors at abortion clinics have to have the authority to admit a patient to a nearby hospital and they generally don't have this. So it was kind of a technical way of, of, of creating a rule that means that abortion clinics couldn't operate in a lot of these rural states. But remaining constitutional because it all goes yeah. back to Roe versus Wade. Yeah and the key here is like Christine is detailing all of these small little ways that abortion was being targeted or was you know there's some kind of movement being brought towards restricting abortion in ways in different states and what we see with these heartbeat bills is a real move towards something that's completely different. The heartbeat bills were seen as quite fringe originally by pro-life advocates in the US and they actually date back, this particular kind of bill that's been used by a number of the states dates back to about 2011 and a woman called Janet Porter who is a very strong pro-life advocate and an anti-gay um, activist as well and she helped to draft this, this so-called kind of model bill where she started this idea of this bill and this heartbeat bill because she believes that when life begins is when you can first hear a heartbeat in a fetus. So the idea with this bill is to move back the point when abortion is um, kind of stopped or the the right to have abortion is stopped to when the heartbeat is first detected. Now this, like I said, was seen as quite fringe. It was quite extreme to some people. People also felt that it was unconstitutional. And that's the point of these bills, that they will be challenged. So the point is that all of these bills that have been um, signed into law, you know, the Georgian bill, the Alabama bill, they are being challenged right now. Then the hope is among the pro-life advocates that they will go as far as the Supreme Court 
And so it's a deliberate tactic to go for these particularly strong bills as opposed to the smaller, um, more easily brought in changes that have been brought in around abortion previously. Yes, I mean, at a basic level, these new laws do what they say on the tin. They're aimed at changing abortion laws by, you know, backed up by politicians and supporters who aren't happy with the current system and want to change it. But really, the, you know, the, the, the overarching reason, reason for them is that they're like a dare to the American legal system. People supporting them actively want these cases to end yeah. up in the Supreme Court. Um, and they've pushed for these restrictions to be passed so that pro-choice groups have to go to challenge them in court. And then when they do go to court, you know, the lower courts are almost certainly going to strike down the Alabama law and the Georgia law, which means the pro-life side can appeal to a higher court and a higher court and eventually end up in the Supreme Court where the majority of judges are believed to be pro-life and they may overturn Roe versus Wade or severely restrict it. But either way, it means that the conversation is happening, that a judicial decision is happening. So there's a couple of things to untangle there. Just to be really clear, so all of these bills coming in right now, these aren't in effect. So the Georgia bill and the Alabama bill are not in effect. Women there are still able to access abortion service, right albeit now. with the restrictions that you've mentioned have all that have already been in place. Exactly. So right now, say, it will take Alabama, for example, that bill's been signed into law, but it takes, there's a six-month period before it becomes enforceable but straight away you had challenges to it so straight away you have groups like Planned Parenthood and the American uh, Civil Liberties Union who like their job is to challenge um, you know laws like this that they believe are unconstitutional so they're going to be challenged straight away and then the whole point is like Christine was saying to see how far those go so whichever the losing side is with the first challenge they will then appeal that challenge and then you'll see it going upwards and upwards the hope is now the Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it deals with the Supreme Court doesn't have to deal with whatever cases come come before it. So the question again there is, will the Supreme Court even want to deal with any of these cases if it gets as far as it? It might decide actually to strengthen states who have very... Or leave well the hell alone. And in terms of just um, thinking about the different states and, you know, you can be very far away from states that do have less restrictive, is there any travel restrictions between states? No, it'd be comparable to the situation here where people in, say, in Northern Ireland could travel to to Ireland and there's no actual restrictions on people travelling. But I suppose pro-choice activists would say that there are restrictions in terms of you need to have access to money, you need to have access to a car if you're going to cross state lines and go somewhere else, it's likely to be more expensive. But there's no actual restrictions. Yeah, it's it's very similar to the Northern Ireland fight. I think that will be taken on or is being taken on right now that the the laws there are different to Great Britain, are different to here, but people will still have to travel, which isn't ideal if you are a pro-choice advocate. Just to go back, Aoife, you mentioned um, the Supreme Court again. Mm -hmm. And again, there's just so many different complexities to this. It sounds like a game of chess that both groups, advocacy groups are playing with each other because really if they, I, I would imagine that pro-choice groups don't want to go to the Supreme Court, but they may end up having to, which kind of Mm -hmm. puts the front foot for those on the pro-life side. Well, yes and no, because in one way you would think that, of course pro-choice groups wouldn't want to go to, Supre- to the Supreme Court because they wouldn't want to see Roe versus Wade challenged. But in one way, maybe they do because it might be a chance to reaffirm the precedent that Roe versus Wade set. Because you actually have two precedents. You have another case as well, which is Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And that reaffirmed the precedent which was set with Roe versus Wade. So you have two really strong cases that went through the Supreme Court that basically affirmed the constitutional right for people in the US to access abortion. So what pro-choice advocates might think is, right, well, we're just going to go there and we will reaffirm yet again the fact that there is this right. Um, But obviously the pro-life advocates are saying, well, actually now this has a lot to do with the makeup of the Supreme Court. And what we saw in the last couple of years is Donald Trump coming into power in 2016. Donald Trump, who is a pro-life advocate, Donald Trump, who said he wanted to deliberately put pro-life judges on the Supreme Court with perhaps a view to overturning Roe versus Wade. So I suppose their hope is that this is something that will take place, that the 
case will get as far as, as the Supreme Court and that these new pro-life judges who include Brett Kavanaugh will make the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. But Brett Kavanaugh has said publicly that he actually, you know, understands the precedent that Roe versus Wade set. Like he hasn't sat there and said that he is deliberately wanting to overturn it. And there's been some interesting articles in the New York Times about the fact that he hasn't really kind of been the character people thought he was going to be, that he's very measured when it comes to making decisions and that maybe this excitement around these two pro-life judges might not really come to pass. That said, we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. It really is all to play for because we won't know until the Supreme Court do decide to take a case and what they make a decision on then. When you're saying all that, I'm really struck by how different it is on this side of the Atlantic. Mm, totally. Um, like we've never had this kind of, you know, idea of an activist Supreme Court where, you know, which is really important laws that change society stem from. And in Ireland, you know, and countries in, in Europe, we expect these changes to come from people or from politicians. And, you know, there's obviously there's questions about how, how fair it is or how robust it is to have these massive of decisions about society made by unelected uh, unelected judges who are political appointees. Yeah, even the fact like, that we didn't legislate for the X case for so long was mm, exactly. was such a point of contention because it's not meant to happen that way. Yeah, and it doesn't feel and that isn't really a debate that we're seeing as much in in the US. And so, what is the exact makeup at the moment in terms of do they know the pro-life versus pro-choice makeup of the Supreme Court? So it's since the uh, appointment, so Donald Trump has been able to appoint two Supreme Court judges during his during his term, which is quite unusual. I mean, a, a president could go through an entire term and only appoint one. So two is already uh, quite high. Um, so you're talking death or retirement? Exactly. Yeah, 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 it was a retirement and it was two retirements, actually. Um, so we what the balance roughly is five judges who would be seen to be pro-life and four who would be seen to be pro-choice. But as Aoife was saying, it's very hard to to say that a judge is explicitly one thing or another. And especially in the Supreme Court at the moment in the US, the nine judges who are on it right now would not be seen as big drivers of social change. They're seen more, it's seen as a very, you know, they're not activists. It's very deliberate. It's very moderate. Um, the current Chief Justice is John Roberts and he sees himself very much as kind of a guardian of the court's authority. So he doesn't want to go and make these huge radical changes. And, he's un- and that's why he's unlikely to oversee any kind of massive overturning of Roe versus Wade. So if it does get to the Supreme Court, I think it's far more likely that there's an incremental change or kind of a, a nudging at the edges rather than perhaps the massive the massive change that some, uh, some might Yeah, or people seeing the Supreme Court as something that's being completely politicised. Yeah, that's yeah, and, and I suppose what it does show is looking at all of these really swift amount of bills being pushed through in a very short period of time, time it does indicate that there is that massive push from the pro-life side in the US that they do see that this is kind of maybe their moment that in 1973 when Roe versus Wade occurred, it really kicked in to life, that pro-choice versus pro-life side in the US, they're both very entrenched and both really, really strong. So this probably feels the pro-life um, advocates that this could be the time where they could finally get what they see as being a very negative thing for American society overturned. So that's why you're seeing such a massive push. And that's why you're seeing a massive pushback against that. Too. Yeah. When you talked about the heartbeat bill being quite fringe or that's where it came from initially, but they have chosen this one as the one that they want to reach the steps of the Supreme Court. So in some ways, is that an odd decision that they would bring a kind of fringe legislation to to it? Well, I think it kind of works on two levels. So the first level is that you can immediately see why people see it as unconstitutional and you can immediately see why pro-choice advocates and groups will want to challenge that law, which in turn gets what we were talking about earlier, hopefully gets it for, you know to the Supreme Court for the people who want that. On the other side, it's also very emotive and it's very evocative, that idea of the heartbeat. Um, and that's the key with it as well. So it's very easy to conceptualise what this law is talking about. Um, it 
it is talking about a period of time which is much earlier than uh, viability, which is what Roe versus Wade was about. So that basically meant you couldn't have an abortion procedure post viability, which would be the fetus surviving outside of the womb. So it rolls things back. It's very easy for people to understand, but it also is easy for pro-life groups, pro-choice groups and pro-choice advocates to immediately say this is something that we don't want. So I think it works on a few different levels from the pro-life side. Yeah, that was definitely a big talking point during the referendum here last year was the point of viability and what a baby or what a fetus or an embryo, Mm. like how it develops. Um, So in terms of the heartbeat bill, they're saying once you can detect a heartbeat, then abortion can't be allowed. Yeah. And that's why you're seeing probably when you're reading articles about it, people listening or reading articles, they're seeing the time period of six weeks being mentioned a lot. And that's because that's around the earliest time where you can detect a heartbeat from a developing fetus. Now, six weeks is an interesting time period because it's usually two weeks after the first missed period. So you date a pregnancy back to the first day of the the period before the person got pregnant. So basically it's like two weeks gestation. So to actually detect a heartbeat at that at that time, you're detecting a heartbeat in what's called the fetal pole. So that's the, the very early stage of development before it kind of becomes a fetus. So it's very early on, um, but it also can only be detected through certain types of ultrasounds. So usually people would find it easier to detect it at about eight to 12 weeks. So that's why you're seeing that six weeks time period and why you're seeing concern among pro-choice advocates around that because they feel that it's at such an early point that people might not actually realise they're pregnant at all because it might only be two weeks after the missed period. But also you have that whole discussion about when life begins and when people believe life begins as well too, all wrapped up within that. And how would you detect a heartbeat? Would it be just a normal ultrasound scan that people would be familiar with at the 10 or 12 week scan or would it be It'd be different. different. So it's called a transvaginal ultrasound. So you can imagine from that name, it's more of an internal ultrasound. So that hasn't been written into any of those bills that women have to have those ultrasounds to detect that heartbeat and that's key to it as well too because if you can't detect the heartbeat or if you're not mandated to have a certain type of ultrasound then maybe the heartbeat won't be detected until a little bit later so maybe that does mean that the abortion procedure can take place later than that six weeks period or even eight week period. But you might be going back to what we talked about here that chill factor for doctors. Exactly you can see why there might be confusion around it and there was you know an article where people were speaking to a woman who works in an abortion clinic in Alabama who said people were already scared and afraid and unsure they could even access procedures there because of the, you know, the media um, discussion of the new bill. So there's a lot of discussion and, you know, concern and people not really knowing what's going on because of the state of play. And have doctors said anything? Are they concerned about any of these bills? So the doctors who have been speaking out about it would be concerned, I suppose, about the six weeks time period and about that idea of whether you're detecting a heartbeat um, in a fetal pole, in a fetus all of those things. But I think as well, doctors are going to be quite careful about which side they, they come down on. Their concern is about the health of the mother generally when they're speaking about this and um, the health of the of the pregnant person. So you're getting mostly pro-choice groups who are talking about this time period um, and kind of starting the discussion about what six weeks actually means. Is this um, the fact that Alabama have done it, Georgia have done it, there's other states that have done similar things. Will we be seeing more of these heartbeat bills coming in? Yeah, I think it's emblematic of the the kind of the shift taking place in abortion um, in in the US right now. Louisiana and Missouri are also looking to bring these in. Um, So that would bring it up to my math. Let me do my maths. That's six uh, states in total looking to bring in the heartbeat bills. And then some other ones uh, as well are also looking at other other things that they can do, um, such as, for example, reducing the number of weeks at which an abortion can take place. So I think that this is just um, kind of not even the start of something. I think this is more we're in the middle of something which is likely to end up being a big part of 
Donald Trump's presidency and um, kind of says a lot about America at the moment. Yeah. How div- divisive could it get? Like, we were really worried last year. It probably didn't get as divisive as people thought it was. There was some, um, I guess, American style tactics used. Um, and there was a couple of protests um, in the city centre where you saw two sides kind of square up to each other. But it was very, very minimal. Um, yeah. But it's, it feels a bit different in the US, yeah. is it? It seems like both sides now are seeking really broad change. So in states where that are, say, Republican led, they're try- they're, you know, doubling down and they're, they're pushing for more restrictive laws. And at the same time, states that are led by Democrats are backing expansions of access in ways that were not even imaginable, say, a decade ago. So they're making sure that people on low incomes are able to get uh, abortion. They're making sure that, you know, in states like US, in the US, they've create they're bringing in, they've brought in a law, sorry, um, to mean that even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, they will try and still make abortion available to people in the state. So in some ways, it's, a, you know, we're seeing this real divide between the states in a way that we didn't before. I mean, a lot of the debate around abortion in the US in the 90s and 2000s, if we can remember back before Trump, was very much kind of incremental. It was very much, you know, at the edges and now kind of trying to change like little bits of the law. And now this is very much entrenched on both sides. Yeah. And just to go back to um, one question I didn't ask earlier um, about the, these specific bills in Georgia and Alabama in terms of one of the other big speaking talking points around abortion restrictions is um, victims of incest and rape. Um, are exceptions made for those in the bills? So they're not made in the Alabama bill and they are made in the Georgia bill. And that is a particularly huge one. That has obviously been criticised um, by a lot of people. The fact that the Alabama decision does not include um, rape and incest victims. Now, I was reading some things which were saying that that was a deliberate decision to make it easier for that kind of cleaner, quote unquote, bill to make its way to the Supreme Court. So as not to actually kind of have too much going on in it. Um, it, There was an amendment that some of the Democrats there tried to push through to actually allow rape and incest victims allow access. Abortion Alabama and that didn't succeed. Yeah, there was actually a shouting match on the floor during the debate um, of the Alabama State Senate about whether there should be this um, exception and it didn't pass but it was some shouting match. Really emblematic of where this debate can go. Just one final question, Aoife. Could Donald Trump just wake up in the morning and decide he just wants to bring in an executive law and ban abortion everywhere in the US? That's something that I asked Larry Donnelly when I was speaking to him earlier, and here's what he said. He cannot do that on his own. Uh, the only way that that could be done legislatively would be a constitutional amendment. That is uh, getting uh, the Congress of the United States and then uh, state legislators, which would require two thirds vote from both uh, houses of Congress uh, and then uh, four fifths of the state legislatures in the United States to approve an amendment to ban uh, abortion uh, or to effectively to overturn Roe versus Wade via the constitutional amendment process. Uh, that's not going to happen. So effectively, uh, President Trump cannot do that uh, on his own. Executive law or not, it's definitely something that I think is going to have a huge part to play in certainly the remaining uh, years of Donald Trump's um, presidency, but also the 2020 election. Uh, Christine and Aoife, thank you so much for explaining all that to us. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by the brilliant people you've just been hearing from, executive producer Christine Bowen and producer Aoife Barry. Our equally brilliant assistant producer and tech operator is Nikki Ryan. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last week, we looked at how Patrick Quirk was found guilty of murder. There are also episodes on measles and vaccinations, John Delaney and the FAI, returning ISIS members to Ireland and why Dublin doesn't have a supervised injection centre yet. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.